I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Ojala Male, and this is the CMAJ Podcast. Happy Valentine's Day, Jola. Happy Valentine's Day. Isn't it suitable that today we're talking about the rise in sexually transmitted infections in Canada? Yes, I'm really excited about this topic um, because it really starts off very small in terms of focusing on gonococcal endocarditis. And then basically we're able to kind of and expand that and have a fulsome discussion about, you know, public health around STIs. Absolutely. Going from a very specific and rare case that I've never seen in my career yet, albeit very young, uh, to sort of some general topics. We're even going to encroach on syphilis and a few more things. Yes, it seems that Manitoba is higher in terms of those um, infections. And so I'm curious to talk to the author today about why this is. Absolutely. And being in an urban emergency department uh, in downtown Toronto, we see this very, very often. And it's associated with all sorts of other concerns and and social challenges. Um, And so I'm very curious to see where we're going with this rising rates in Canada and how we can really turn this around. And I don't know about you, Jola, but I was a little bit surprised that even with the pandemic, this stuff was rising. I would have thought that maybe... Tinder and Grinder and apps that might help facilitate the spread of STIs might have collapsed during the pandemic, but that doesn't seem to be the case. I was surprised by that. Um, <laughs> oh, come on. That's totally fair game. Um, <laughs> that is a very, uh, that's a very true point. Part of what's not like that we can have a more uh, fulsome conversation about is whether it's social behaviors or societal um, structures that are causing there to be an increase in all STIs, but especially gonorrhea, would be very interesting. And Jola, I have a little bit of a selfish goal here. I'm super curious to learn later in the show when we talk to someone from the BC Centers for Disease Control about exactly how we should be testing for these conditions, especially gonorrhea. In the UK, when I was there, nobody wanted to co-treat with ceftriaxone, if you had a suspected chlamydia infection, they actually would go to the trouble right in the lab of going ahead and putting your urine on a slide and looking for diplococci. And if they didn't see it, you didn't get ceftriaxone because their resistance rates are so high. Then when I went to New York City, they thought I was crazy trying to differentiate clinically an infection. And they just gave everybody ceftriaxone just in case they had a gonococcal infection. And so I'm very curious what I should be doing in the emergency room when somebody shows up, either with or without symptoms. Maybe they just have risk factors. I, I can never keep the guidelines straight. Uh, so this is a great point for us to start, and let's start with our first interview with the author, Dr. Carl Budman. Dr. Carl Budman is an infectious disease specialist and a medical microbiology fellow at the University of Manitoba. Welcome today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, Jola. So you begin the study with the story of one patient. Walk us through the case. Sure. So this is a 54-year-old man who was really referred to hospital by his uh, family doctor who heard a new murmur. And there had been some things changing with this patient over the previous couple of weeks. 
He had new onset arthritis and that came on quite suddenly and was atraumatic, so no trauma before. And there were some other kind of more subtle changes, a little bit of low-grade fever before. And then on doing a physical exam, the the family doctor noticed a a quite substantial new murmur. He was then referred Mm. to an acute uh, care hospital. um, And the cardiac center here in Winnipeg is St. Boniface Hospital. And at that point, he actually did deteriorate quite quickly afterwards, mm-hmm. which what, with what we later found out was endocarditis and uh, aortic valve insufficiency and heart failure and needed therapy, both antimicrobial supportive management as well as uh, surgical interventions to, to, keep him, uh, to keep him alive. And he made a great recovery, but it, it was worrisome throughout the process. So this is a very advanced phase of the infection from what, you know, you've been describing. Why was it not detected earlier? Were there not any like local symptoms of gonorrhea? So there weren't. And this is actually common. So in most cases, really? yeah, in most cases of disseminated gonococcal disease, I mean, endocarditis is a kind of rare, a severe manifestation of disseminated gonococcal infection. But in most cases, people don't have any symptoms at the site of sexual activity. So people assume that if you had gonorrhea and whether it's urethral or in the vaginal mucosa or cervix or the throat or the rectum, that you'd have symptoms. That's actually not the case. I mean, we know that probably 60, 70, the majority of people do not have symptoms. And it might oh, be wow. even more likely in people who get disseminated gonococcal infection, maybe because people, if they have symptoms, they present to hospital, they present to care, they get treated, and then the bacteria doesn't have time to disseminate. So it's actually more the rule that people with disseminated gonococcal infection will not have symptoms of urethritis or any kind of inflammation symptoms at the site that they have sex. And I say this broadly because people have sex in different ways. What are some other examples of disseminating gonorrhea? We touched about endocarditis with this patient. What are some other manifestations of the disseminating uh, gonorrhea? That's a great question. So the kind of quintessential one is this triad of polyarthralgia. So arthralgia, some pain in the joints, but not like a frank arthritis. Tenocytovitis, which is uh, kind of inflammation around the tendons, and, and it's often in the kind of wrists or the, the fingers or the ankles. And then also a rash. And that rash, sometimes it's vesicular, pustular. It can look like different things, but it's it's that tri- that quintessentially it's this triad. The other kind of manifestation of disseminated gonococcal infection is this like frank septic arthritis. So one joint Mm. is really painful and swollen, like people are not walking on it. But the triad with the arthritis, people usually can still hobble in. And then there's all kinds of other manifestations. Endocarditis is severe, meningitis is severe, and those are all rare in the post-antibiotic era. Before 1945, Gonorrhea might have been historically one of the more common causes of endocarditis, but that's historical. So, I mean, I think part of, just to get it around, wrap around my head, is that part of preventing disseminating gonorrhea is to be able to have people have access, equal access and ready access to treating gonorrhea, period, right? Exactly. That's exactly correct, Ola. So it's a matter of treating it, but also identifying it. And as I mentioned, a lot of people are asymptomatic. So when we're talking about uh, kind of public health, a disease of public health importance, it's a matter of finding ways of engaging uh, people uh, with primary care, uh, 
and a trusting relationship in primary care, and then doing screening, whether they have symptoms or not, and then providing treatment when the test is positive. Now, on a population level, that will help decrease the rates of transmission. And then the cascade will be there'll also be less of these very severe manifestations that we're starting to see. So what would a primary care physician, who should they be screening? Basically anybody who's sexually active. doesn't matter. So everybody? Everybody. Yeah. yeah. Everybody who's sexually active should be screened. I mean, there are some guidelines. I think even CMAJ might have published them recently. But there are are some guidelines that suggest generally younger people, but most sexually active adults should be screened once a year. I think that approach makes sense. And then for people who have multiple sexual partners, um, then screen them more often. And obviously, if there's any contact with that case, then screening then too. And so I think just relatively routine screening. And the important part is also screening at the site of sexual activity. So having a conversation about how people have sex and then uh, doing a nucleic acid amplification test. So that's your standard test for, uh, you know, gonorrhea and chlamydia. You know, sampling that at the site at which people have sex. Carl, when it comes to sampling, what's the best way to do that? Can people self-swab? Or are we supposed to do the swab ourselves? I I heard all sorts of different ideas in residency. What's the best approach that you use to make sure that you get the sample you need? That's a great question. There's different ways of doing it. So there's a lot of good evidence for self-swab if if someone's interested in doing that. There's also the first-pass urine is one possible means of testing, which is less invasive as well. So for pharyngeal stuff, usually it's harder to self-swab because people don't like making themselves gag. So generally, for, for if you're worried about pharyngeal gonorrhea, then a self-swab probably wouldn't work. And then also for rectal, usually it's not. Self-swab can work, but often it's uh, a practitioner who does it. Well, I think uh, in this context, th- the most important thing is thinking about it and testing at the right site. And exactly how the testing happens, there are kind of pros and cons, but at a population level, I think the big issue is just doing more screening and engaging people in the conversation and just knowing that you're screening the the right area. And then for disseminated, it, it would be blood cultures every time? That's correct. Blood cultures, but also testing, uh, still testing even asymptomatic areas where people have sex. So blood cultures, we see a lot of positive blood cultures, but actually blood cultures are not very good for Neisseria, for Neisseria gonorrhea. So the Neisseria is a little finicky and it sometimes dies in the lab for no reason. We catch it a fair bit, but there's a number of cases where people do have disseminated gonococcal disease. And the only way you're diagnosing it is they have the clinical syndrome and you have proof of gonorrhea at the site of sexual activity. And the clinical syndrome is clearly disseminated gonococcal disease. And even with, antibio- with, with blood cultures, those are sometimes negative. But the important part is, yes, every time you consider disseminated gonococcal infection, draw blood cultures, draw them prob- before antibiotics, so that's important. And also take a sexual history and try to sample it from the site of sexual activity. Carl, let's go to something a little bit more common that people might see in their clinic or their emergency department or their general practice is people who have symptoms of a sexually transmitted infection. What is the best workup at that time? I mean, in the emergency department, I never order HIV and syphilis. Like I don't do the whole workup. I sort of say, well, you should just go to a sexual health clinic and we'll just treat you now. And I kind of feel like I'm kind of passing the buck. I know that a lot of people probably aren't going to go to the clinic and get their full workup. 
but it's just not something we tend to do in the emergency department very often. What's the best route when you're sort of first seeing these patients? How much testing should you do? And then what is the best treatment? Are you always giving the azithro as well? I know that in this case, the gentleman got a gram of azithromycin. Can you just kind of refresh my memory on when to do the ceftriaxone, when to do the azithromycin, when to think about maybe other medications? And then what am I supposed to test for when I first meet these people? Great questions. Um, so I'll Sorry, start with the first one. podcast right there. <laughs> no, I, no, no, these are great. And the only reason I, I, I mentioned that they're great questions is the fact that there, there's actually a kind of shifting landscape. So the U.S. guidelines are different than the Canadian mm. ones. But I'll go into that in a second. But first, uh, so if you're suspecting sexually transmitted infections or sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections and people have risk factors or they just haven't been screened recently, I just do them all. And I do them also in the eMERGE. We've, we've caught a lot of new HIV diagnoses. We've caught a lot mm-hmm. of new HIV diagnoses, syphilis diagnoses through the eMERGE. And people would present for something else. And they may be struggling with substance use disorders of subtype, or they have some other risk factor, or they just haven't been screened in a while. And uh, we catch a lot that way. And then it's a way of also linking them into care. And there's also kind of public health contact tracing as well. And in some places, like in, you know, where I trained in Vancouver, you don't actually, it's an opt-out system. So you don't, if someone presents to care, you don't actually need to get consent to test for these things. There's a big sign on the door and it's an opt-out. So you just Mm. go ahead and test, tack them onto your CBC and whatever else. And in other jurisdictions, you have to have a conversation, and I know probably for eMERGE docs, that's, that extra minute or two will, will slow you down, and that could be a barrier. But I would say, if, if you can, test, test kind of right off the bat. The other barrier in the ER for me, sure. and I'm sure family docs sure. feel this as well, is that you don't get your test result back right away. And as a family doctor, I guess you can call people up later, but as an eMERGE doc with episodic care, I feel like that's my only window to treat. Should I be treating people before I have their results just because they have risk factors and symptoms? It, it kind of depends. And, and I'll just uh, mention one thing about the follow-up. So there's an integrated public health laboratory and public health follow-up. So even earlier today or this afternoon, I'll be at the public health lab. All of those new HIV diagnoses are forwarded to public health, are communicated to the HIV team. Mm. So even without you, like even if you were doing a locum, you tested one person and moved to a different country, there's still a structure in place to uh, try to connect people with new, especially Mm. new HIV diagnoses, but new uh, sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections to care. And so even if you personally don't follow up or your eMERGE doesn't follow up, there is a system in place to actually follow up with patients. So that's an additional reason to, to, to treat okay. uh, or to test, rather. Now, for your question about empiric treatment, so if they have a contact, sure. Usually public health does this independently and people don't need to present to eMERGE for this. I usually screen, I, you know, there's issues with antimicrobial resistance and stuff like that. So if they have a clear contact, then empiric contact treatment, uh, testing and treatment, but often empiric treatment before you get the result is fine. If they don't have a c- contact and they just haven't been screened in a year, I wouldn't give IM ceftriaxone to like everybody who walks in the door. So I'd say screen, d- don't treat unless they have a uh, clear contact. Uh, usually public health does this, but go ahead and do the testing and there is a system in place to, to help follow up. And so that not all of that relies on your shoulders. Even if they have symptoms, just leave it to public health. Oh, if you have symptoms, then yeah. If you have symptoms of urethritis, the kind of classical mm-hmm. symptoms, yeah, then I, I would go ahead and just treat people. 
obviously testing for the mimics, like, you know, urinary tract infection, trichomoniasis, all these other things. But yes. And so in Canada, you were talking about the treatment guidelines for uncomplicated gonococcal disease, urethritis. And often if you can't, if you haven't excluded chlamydia yet, you give 250 milligrams IM intramuscular of ceftriaxone once you give one gram of azithro at the same time. That's for two reasons. One is to try to prevent some emerging gonococcal resistance and also to treat, concomitantly treat chlamydia if it's there. Now, in the States, just in the last year, they've changed their guidelines. They do away with the azithro. They give a higher dose of ceftriaxone. It's 500 milligrams IM once. You do not, if you've excluded chlamydia, you do not need to treat it. If you haven't excluded chlamydia, then they go with doxycycline for a week. In Canada, we haven't yet, and I don't, there's different kind of epidemiologic and resistance patterns, so I don't know if we'll follow suit, but I just want to mention that the states in Canada have different guidelines. At, At this point, they may converge in another couple of years. Great. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. That was Dr. Carl Boudman. Uh, He is an infectious disease uh, physician at University of Manitoba and currently a medical microbiologist. Jola, we had an amazing conversation with Dr. Boudman after we stopped recording, and it turns out that disseminated gonorrhea is just the tip of the iceberg. To help us understand the wider problem of rising STIs, we turn to Dr. Jason Wong, a public health and preventative medicine specialist in British Columbia. He's also the associate medical director for the Clinical Prevention Services Division at the BC Center for Disease Control. Welcome. Hi, right, thanks so much. I didn't know that we had a CDC in Canada. Just this, like, FYI. <laughs> just in BC. BC CDC. <laughs> BC CDC. I still yes, think it's Yes, we cool. often differentiate for, say, CDC Atlanta so that people are clear <laughs> which CDC we're talking about. Cool. <laughs> Very exclusive. So Dr. Budman was saying that he's seeing more cases of disseminated gonorrhea. How surprising is that to you? Well, we certainly have been seeing many of our bacterial STIs rising, I would say in British Columbia, but also in Canada. Specifically for gonorrhea, we have seen some dramatic increases over the last decade. Um, So I'll speak for British Columbia, where cases have essentially doubled over the last uh, decade. So it really has increased dramatically. And maybe just for some comparison, chlamydia, which is another bacterial sexually transmitted infection, has only been increasing about 5% per year. So you can really see a bit of a contrast between kind of how chlamydia has been rising, but also gonorrhea. So rising STIs has sort of been in the media recently, but how can it get so bad that you have disseminated gonococcal infections on the rise? The disseminated gonococcal infections, I think Dr. Goodman, Goodman sorry, uh, uh, spoke to this, and those are still quite rare uh, occurrences of gonorrhea. So I think in his paper, he you know reported about, about 75, I think, in the last few years. Um, most of the gonorrhea infections really are from due to sexual activity. So they're typically seen in urethral sites, cervical sites, rectal sites, and pharyngeal sites. So those really make up the vast majority uh, of the gonorrheal infections that we see in British Columbia. So disseminated uh, gonorrhea is still fairly rare, I would say, in, in across Canada. You were saying that chlamydia is going up around 5% a year. What's going on, on the ground in British Columbia with gonorrhea? How quickly is it rising? So they've gone up from well, 1,200 cases in about... Uh, about 10 years ago to about 3,600 cases in 2020. And so they have gone up quite a bit. But just to kind of give you some more context, so chlamydia is where we still see most of the infections. So we do see about 
you know, 12 to 13,000 cases of chlamydia per year. So gonorrhea mm-hmm. is still quite a bit rarer than, than chlamydia. So, but it is just kind of that rate of rise to kind of noting here. And the other one, maybe I'll mention here at the same time or in the same breath is around syphilis. Uh, which is kind of the third bacterial sexually transmitted infection that we often talk about. And so syphilis has increased even more dramatically than gonorrhea. And so for syphilis in BC, we've seen an eightfold increase since 2010. And so for 2021, we're reporting of almost 1,500 cases of infectious syphilis in British Columbia, up from about wow. 154 in 2010, wow. when it was kind of at its uh, trough here. Wow. Now, those infections are on the rise, but HIV is not. It's actually declining. Why is mm-hmm. that? Yeah, so in BC, HIV has been decreasing at about 5% per year over the last 10 years. And I would say there's a lot of reasons for that. One, I think there was a lot of efforts around prevention. So condom use, for example, was one of the things that was touted as one of the ways that people could prevent HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. And so that was, I think, one of the reasons that we saw some HIV declines. But we also have additional strategies here to try to prevent HIV as well. So pre-exposure prophylaxis, for example, is one of the more recent kind of technologies that have been implemented. And so in BC, we do have a publicly funded HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis program, which does enable people to access this, which we know is very effective at preventing um, HIV Um, But I would say there are a number of other strategies too. So in BC, we also recommend routine testing for HIV. And so one of the goals that we have from this program was to identify people living with HIV earlier in order to get them access to treatment. Uh, And we do know that early access to treatment, one, improves the person living with HIV, their health outcomes. But secondly, it also does allow us to reduce their viral load quicker, uh, which does Mm -hmm. also reduce uh, transmission. Uh, so those are just, I think, some of the examples of some of the, the strategies that we have here. The third thing I might say, which I think is really important, is around how we try to destigmatize HIV. And so there are some efforts uh, to try to kind of do this proactively. But in BC, I do think one of the things that has helped destigmatize um, HIV is this routine screening for HIV. And so it becomes part of the routine care as opposed to having to ask people for their risk factors for HIV. And so that's just kind of, to me, a little piece of the puzzle that helps destigmatize or kind of demystify HIV in, in the community. When you say routine screening, what does that entail? What does that mean? So in BC, our recommendations for HIV uh, testing is that people who uh, are 18 to 70 years old, we recommend that they get to a test every five years. Mm-hmm. And maybe I should actually preface this by saying so the the overarching goal is that um, healthcare providers know the HIV status of their patients. And so in order to do that, we, we recommend that people 18 to 70 years old have HIV tests every five, every five years. And populations that are disproportionately affected by HIV, so gay, bisexual, and other men have sex with men, people who inject drugs, for example, we recommend that they get tested uh, for HIV uh, routinely. But the third thing I would say is to, to remind clinicians to include HIV as part of their differential diagnosis. And so if they are working up a, a new or worsening condition, that they consider HIV infection and actually order an HIV test in order to rule out HIV infection. So does every 18 to 70-year-old who gets admitted to hospital in BC who doesn't have an HIV record on file in the last five years get an HIV test as part of their admission blood work? Well, those are the recommendations. And so how oh, that wow. translates in practice may vary. But certainly there has been like investments and, and education to, tr- to try to encourage people to 
again, think about HIV infection and to routinely order HIV tests for, for individuals. And so we do know that has had an impact. And so in BC, we, we do monitor for HIV testing volumes and we have substantial increases in HIV testing since this program mm. uh, was, was implemented. And primary care physicians have access to this also, correct? What, yes. So, I mean, it is part of the, like our routine, like lab requisition form. So okay. primary care providers and other clinicians can, can all order HIV testing. Jason, during the pandemic, I would think that the type of encounters that lead to STI prevalence would sort of go down. Why do you think STIs are on the rise? Well, so, so I think there's two pieces to that. So I think part of the question is what is happening with STIs Overall, and so I think there are a number of theories that we have around this, but I think one of the reasons is, you know, increased testing. So we do know that many STIs don't have symptoms, and so people may not know that they actually have an STI unless they get tested. And so some changes in recommendations or how often people get tested, it does lead to more diagnoses of STIs. So I think that's kind of one component of it. And so maybe just as an example, so one of the things uh, that we recommend for people who are on HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis is that they routinely get screened for STI. And so that would be one example of how screening may actually be increasing diagnoses for sexually transmitted infections. But there's other pieces as well as to why STIs may be rising. So the other piece is, you know, whether there may be some changes to behaviors. And so you know, I spoke in the beginning around, you know, condom use is one of the preventions that we can have for sexually transmitted infections. But we know that not everybody likes using condoms. And so some of the ways of in which HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis has um, reduced kind of risk of HIV transmission. And so some people are feeling more comfortable with not with having sex without a condom. And so there are these changes that may be happening as well that may also be increasing sexually transmitted infections. So these are all kind of really important theories that we're all still continuing to contemplate. At the end of the day, it probably is a mixture of all of these different factors that are contributing to the increases in, in sexually transmitted infections. Can we use any of the lessons from the success of PrEP and the HIV decline to other STIs? Mm-hmm. We, we have seen that HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis has been a very acceptable and kind of like feasible strategy that people are very willing to, to use. So taking a, a pill a day. And so one of the ideas that we've had is whether or not a similar approach could be used to prevent sexually transmitted infections, like bacterial sexually transmitted infections. And so there was a, a pilot study that was done in Los Angeles several years now, which did find like do- that daily doxycycline was, was effective. It was statistically significant in reducing overall bacterial sexually transmitted infections. It was not statistically significant for syphilis, which is one of the ones that we're most kind of concerned about because of its kind of rapid rise as of late, and, but also because of the complications due to syphilis. And so one of the things that we've been or we've launched here is a research study trying to look at pre as well as post-exposure prophylaxis using doxycycline to see if that may actually prevent bacterial sexually transmitted infections, so chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. But we are you know, particularly interested to see if that might be another tool in our, in our toolbox to prevent sexually transmitted infections. So there are some, I think, some of these learnings that we've had from HIV and trying to kind of transfer uh, those into other um, sexually transmitted infections in order to see if those kind of same strategies might work as That's well. That's so interesting. Would uh, daily doxycycline not lead to antibiotic resistance? Mm-hmm. So I think that's definitely one of the big concerns that we have of using a daily antibiotic like doxycycline. We do know that doxycycline is used for you know, prevention of other types of infections, so malaria, for example. Yeah. So there is some history and precedent to using doxycycline daily. But, you know, that, but I think the concern for antimicrobial resistance is a very important issue. 
But the other aspect I think I would mention is we're not talking about broad use of doxycycline. We are trying to identify people who are at highest risk for or for sexually transmitted infections or reinfection mm-hmm. of sexually transmitted infections. And so wanting to ensure that you know we are targeting our interventions for people who are most likely to benefit and least likely to kind of confer kind of these type of population level impacts like antimicrobial resistance that we might be worried about. I want to bring this down to the front lines. If you're a busy emergency doctor or a very busy primary care doctor running a clinic, what should you be doing? Who should you be looking out for? Who should you be screening? And then who should you be treating? Yeah. So I, I would say one of the things that I would encourage people in you know primary care, for example, and family medicine to do is is to have some of these conversations with your patients. So ask them about their sexual activities, whether they've had new sexual partners, the type of sexual activity that they participate in, because that does transfer to the risk of having sexually transmitted infections. So broadly speaking, so people who have new partners or who have multiple partners, sexual partners, I mean, or people who have have symptoms that are consistent with sexually transmitted infections, we do recommend that they get screened or, or tested for sexually transmitted infections. And so I think we do know that many people possibly the majority of people don't actually have symptoms of sexual transmitted infections. And so the only way really is to know is to have to have testing. And so that is the, the biggest piece I would say is to have those conversations and to try to kind of normalize those types of conversations with your patients so that they feel comfortable speaking to their to to you as as your as their healthcare provider and to make kind of informed uh, decisions as to how often they should be get should be screened for sexually transmitted infections. And so screening is really the key. These are these are sneaky organisms. Yeah, well, eh? screening definitely is one of the key pillars that we have. But social context and stigma are all also part of that, a part of that conversation, part of those drivers of sexually transmitted infections. So I really do think that frontline care providers like family doctors really play a, a really critical role in, you know, understanding sexual health and sexual well-being and also trying to meet some of those other kind of social needs that people have. So things like social supports and, and housing and these types of aspects that really do support the overall well-being of an individual. So a family doctor should screen everybody in terms of at least screening questions or tests in, in terms of sexual activity and for STIs. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, I would say 70. that... Yeah, that, that family physicians should be speaking to their clients and their patients about sexual health and their sexual activities and recommending screening as, as appropriate. So somebody who is in a, you know, monogamous and a relationship may not need screening as often as somebody who may be having multiple partners or sequential partners or, or but sometimes their, you think partners. you're monogamous, but you're not. I, I think this comes down to having that uh, <laughs> trusting relationship with your provider. I mean, certainly I think we do know that things happen and, and people may have or believe some things and it may not actually be true. But you know, I think for the most part, most people do know their partners quite well, and their risk is kind of aligned with, with their knowledge of what of their partners. Joel is trying to ruin Valentine's Day for us. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like Jason has young love in his heart because I'm like, you don't know people. Horrible. <laughs> just joking. Jason, any last thoughts on how we can protect vulnerable populations from these rising infections? Well, I would say like one of the things that we're trying to uh, work towards is having more kind of patient-centric care. And so I think what that means for us is thinking about, you know, my work is in primarily sexually transmitted bloodborne infections, but fully recognize that 
this is not the only thing that people are thinking about and that there is one multiple infections, but also like there are other aspects to their life and their wellness. And so this is kind of what we're talking about when we, we talk about things like syndemics-based care. So syndemics is a theory in which multiple epidemics can be exacerbated or reinforcing kind of one another. So thinking, for example, of how mental health and substance use might also kind of intersect with, with mm. sexually transmitted infections. And so I think one of the things that we want to move towards is kind of thinking about the whole patient type kind of a care and that sexual health and STI care is just a piece of that. And so wanting to make sure that there are other supports like social supports and care for other coexisting conditions that are also part of kind of that well-being and kind of approach to the patient. So I think that is kind of the type of movement that we're trying to move towards. And I think one of the reasons why kind of collaboration engagement with um, primary care and other clinicians uh, and healthcare providers, but also allied health uh, care providers are really important for, for patients. Jason, thank you so much. That's a great place for us to pause. We really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Jason Wong is a public health and preventative medicine specialist and the Associate Medical Director of Clinical Prevention Services at the BC Center for Disease Control. So Blair, this has been a really great episode talking to both Dr. Boodman and Dr. Wong about the rise of STIs, uh, especially syphilis and gonorrhea in Canada. Um, what were your, what are some of your initial thoughts that you're having? I think just reflecting on, on how I practice now and mm. the emergency department is so busy right now. The pandemic has just caused complete chaos and I know that I'm under testing. I'm not getting the syphilis blood work done. I'm not doing HIV testing. Um, and I actually very rarely, I think, compared to maybe what other people do, test for gonococcal infections and chlamydia because at my hospital, we don't get those tests back mm. the same day. And so I think I have this habit, we're just so busy of saying, look, I'll test you for what I need to test you for. I'll treat you for what I need to treat you for but you need to go to a sexual health clinic and get this sorted out properly. And I think that with the pandemic, I don't know that people are actually going to that follow-up. And so I think that this is a wake-up call for me to make sure that I'm offering testing at the point of interaction to make it easy for people um, and considering uh, treatment more frequently than what I'm doing now. I, I think I'm over-relying on other parts of the healthcare system to get this right. It seems that that's a very uh, clear point that um, screening, 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 testing, 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 and that those two areas are very important uh, in terms of preventing disseminating forms of uh, these sexually transmitted bacterial infections. And testing in the right place as well. I yeah. Mean, I think I'm, I'll send off a urine gnat, but I, I very rarely ask about swabbing throats and rectums. I, and I, that's a, a default habit of just being in a very busy place. I'm seeing patients in hallways and chairs. I can't have these private conversations. And so I just I just defer to public health and the sexual clinics, which I think access to those is just so hard. Yeah, I think it's really important that, um, as always, the our family physicians are the backbone of our healthcare system. And it seems also when we're talking about um, 
SDIs, that they're still the backbone of it in terms of, you know, having that rapport with their patients to have the sexual history and to, and I, one thing that really stood out for me from both uh, Dr. Wong and Dr. Boodman was that you just screen everybody and you test everybody. There's no stigma of, well, only this population should be tested. The assumption is anyone who's sexually active between 18 and 70 I would argue there might be some very active over 70s, um, but all of them, <laughs> all of them should, all of them should be screened and if appropriate, tested. And so that was a really important point. Um, and one thing that Dr. Boodman and Dr. Wong touched a bit about was the fact that the social determinants of health really does drive these conversations. Um, this seems to be a continual theme um, with our podcast that we're noticing is that really social determinants of health, really um, like both of us are specialists and our, my job is to cut things out and your job is to fix things and diagnose things. Uh, but really the, what really makes the most impact is addressing some of the social determinants of health. Especially. And like Jason was saying, these syndemics, these mm-hmm. overlapping epidemics of mental health, of drug use, of crystal meth, of STIs, they all go hand in hand and affect crossover populations. If you drew a Venn diagram of who gets this infection and who gets this infection and who has mental health problems, those Venn diagrams would probably overlap an awful lot. And I think often they're overlapping and in populations that we can all predict need more, um, a, a more robust social safety net. That's it for this week's episode of the CMAJ podcast. It is Valentine's Day. If you love us, we'd really appreciate you rating or sharing this podcast through whatever platform you're using. It goes a long way to helping us get out the message. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mojola Amale. Stay well until next time.